Before we begin, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that we walk by the Spirit in the Christian life in the church age. Paul talks about the fact that we, about living according to the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and that in Romans 8, he contrasts the walk by the Spirit and the walk according to the flesh, as he does in Galatians 5. And when we sin, we are turning ourselves over to the control of our sin nature. The only way to recover is to confess sin. And 1 John 1, nine says that when we do that, we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer and uh, to give you the opportunity to make sure you're ready for study of God's word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Now, Father, it's a tremendous uh, privilege we have to come before your throne of grace because the Lord Jesus Christ rent the veil in two, opened the pathway, and because he is our high priest, we have access to your throne of grace. Father, we come before you as citizens of this nation and as believers. We recognize that we are clearly in the crosshairs of satanic attack in the uh, grand scheme of the angelic conflict. And we recognize that his aim is to destroy nations that are the bulwark of truth, the bulwark of gospel uh, presentation, the bulwark of evangelism and missionary activity. And for the last hundred years, we have seen the uh, corrosive effects of uh, epistemological liberalism, rebellion against the authority of your word, uh, epistemological liberalism, which produces both uh, social and religious liberalism that has destroyed the uh, very core of what was founded in this nation through the uh, Puritans and through the original uh, settlers who came here and our founding fathers. Father, the only thing that will ultimately provide a change is a change of heart. Then that comes only by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But there are many other things we can do that come short of that ultimate goal, and we need to have the courage and the uh, intelligence and knowledge to be able to affect those changes one day at a time. Give us the courage of our convictions to be involved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the teaching of your word this evening, recognizing that all of your word is breathed out by you and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And we pray that we might be responsive to your word tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5, and just to uh, briefly remind you as we ended the last chapter, we'll get into the details more. The ark of God, the ark of the Lord of hosts, the who dwells between the cherubim, has been captured by the enemy. He has been captured by the Philistines and taken off. And Israel is devastated. They have counted on victory in the past, Bringing the ark into battle has always given them uh, them victory, but now that has failed, and they have failed. They have been unsuccessful in defeating their enemy, and God has been defeated, it appears. And we always have to remember that when we're looking at a lot of these Old Testament events and stories, that they are historical events, 
But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they are for our benefit. They are, an, they, they are recorded as an example for us. And there are a lot of analogies that we can draw between what happens to the nation and what happens to us as individuals. The nation is in spiritual rebellion, so now God has sort of um, stepped back and removed his restraint on on their spiritual life so that they're going to reap the consequences of, of their rebellion. And he is going to allow the ark to be captured, not because God is defeated, but because he's going to teach Israel a lesson. And a lot of times the same kind of thing can happen uh, in our own lives because uh, we don't learn how to really trust in God. We end up going through the motions, and we're not really walking with the Lord. And that is what happened uh, What happened to Israel. Now, we are about to go into chapter 5, which in my opinion is one of the most humorous chapters in all of the Bible. It is a chapter that is not politically correct. It is a chapter that would, uh, if you were coming, if you were to be here for the first time tonight as a, as a new believer, fresh out of the uh, culture of the world around us, you might even be offended at what God does in this chapter because the human viewpoint thinking that dominates our world today emphasizes the fact that we need to treat uh, every religion as if it has equal value and every belief system as, it, as if it is equally beneficial, whether it's a, a belief system that is extremely primitive involving animism and spiritism or whether it is a more elevated ethical religious system. But you see, God doesn't operate that way. Now, that doesn't justify us in being uh, somewhat, uh, somewhat cavalier or disrespectful or just downright snotty with a, uh, somebody's religious system because we're not God. But God can poke fun at them because, well, God's God, and he knows everything. And he knows exactly what is going on, and he's not going to allow his reputation to be treated cavalierly, and he is not going to allow himself to be dishonored. And so he is going to allow himself to be captured, but not defeated. And I've entitled this lesson, uh, When It Looks Like God is Defeated, because many times in our life we reach places where we're struggling with something in our life and it looks like uh, our trust in God is somewhat misplaced. Now, as we look at this particular chapter, I'm reminded of what Peter says in Acts 10.34. In Acts 10.34, this is when Peter first wakes up to the fact that God is going to work in the Gentiles as he's been working inside with the Jews. And he makes this statement. He says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Now, I like the King James translation, even though uh, the New American Standard or New King James is more accurate. The King James says no respecter of persons. That also captures the idea there. God is not elevating one person over another. And that often is what happens in human viewpoint systems, that we elevate ourselves more highly than we ought to. We elevate human religions more highly than we ought to. We don't want to uh, offend somebody uh, by saying that what they believe is wrong. 
But there are certain certain times in life when we need to tell people the truth. We need to do it in a matter of uh, generosity, grace, kindness, but uh, they're wrong. They are, if they continue, if you saw somebody that was on the path to uh, some sort of accident or they were going to become uh, burned, they were going to create some sort of trauma in their life, then it would be our responsibility to stop them, to tell them the truth. But see, when we live in a culture where truth has been rejected and people believe that there is no truth, then it becomes difficult for people to operate on an absolute of right and wrong and tell somebody, well, I'm sorry, but what you believe isn't wrong. Help, I'll, I'll be glad to help you think it through. And the truth is that there is a God. He loves you, and he's provided a perfect solution to your problems, which is Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And working through that is not just as quick as I just said, because often often there is um, much more to it than that. Now, we've looked at this outline in the first seven chapters, which is the preparation. This is really the introductory section to Samuel, the full books of Samuel, which is in the English Bible is First and Second Samuel, but in the Hebrew Bible it's just one book. And it's preparing the nation for this change. Yahweh is going to prepare the nation for a change, but in order to prepare them for the change, he's got to straighten out a lot of the problems in the nation. They have rejected him and his provision, and they are living in idolatry. They are living in gross immorality. They have adopted a system of moral relativism, and they have rejected God. And so God is going to first have to bring some discipline, some judgment into their uh, their lives in order to get their attention so that they will begin uh, to look toward him. So this is part of the preparation. And in these seven chapters, there's basically two events that take place. The first event is the provision of a prophet who will be the instrumental man of God who brings about the change. And that's the provision of Samuel. And that's really covered in the first three chapters. Chapter 1, we have God providing a miraculous uh, 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 pregnancy for uh, his mother Hannah, her vow to give her child, her son, to the service of Yahweh, and then the magnificent prayer that she prayed at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where she recognizes that there's this connection between the birth of her son and the coming of the Messianic king. And then we shift, and in the next part of chapter 2, there's the contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli. Samuel and the family of, uh, of Hannah and the sons of Eli. And this ends, it culminates with two prophetic announcements, one by an unnamed man of God at the end of chapter 2, saying that the whole house of Eli is going to be destroyed, and then it's confirmed as God gives a prophetic revelation to Samuel in in chapter 2. And so Samuel becomes a central central person here. And as we saw this outline at the second part of that, God uh, Yahweh is orchestrating the collapse of the old order. We looked at uh, chapter four, 
that Yahweh causes Israel to be defeated and allows the ark to be captured to demonstrate his sovereignty over the enemies of Israel and their gods. So that's part of what he's going to do. God multitasks. He doesn't just do one thing, and the same thing is true in our lives. He will let us go through some situation, and he's going to accomplish three or four things. He's going to both straighten out a problem, and he is going to enable us to grow and to come to a greater understanding of his grace. So he's going to demonstrate that God's more powerful, that he is more powerful than the enemies of Israel and their gods. And in turn, he will cleanse the corruption of the priesthood. And then he's teaching Israel to trust in him alone. And this has got to be the hardest lesson for Christians to understand. I've been teaching this and referring to this in First Samuel on Thursday nights teaching it some as we're going through Samuel. We'll be hitting it in in some ways this coming Sunday. It's interesting how this week sort of everything complements each other. But coming to understand that we are to trust God exclusively and what that means and what it means that, that God is sufficient, his grace is sufficient, his power is sufficient, the word is sufficient, the cross is sufficient. And when I start talking, everybody nods their head, says amen when you say those those phrases. But when you start talking about what that actually means in facing day-to-day traumas, challenges, and issues, people then go, well, wait a minute, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that. Well, that's why you're not being very effective in your Christian life. That's exactly what we're going to see on Sunday morning when the, when the uh, apostles uh, fail after many successful uh, uh, times of casting demons out. They fail, and they fail miserable, miserably, and we'll discover the problem is they've quit thinking in terms of the sufficiency of Christ's power and trusting in him. And this is what happens in, in people's lives. So chapter 4, we saw the capture of the ark. And then in this next uh, section, uh, in chapter 5, we're going to see how God is establishing the means for delivering Israel. And that takes us down through the end of chapter uh, chapter 6. So as we look at this, just a reminder on Samuel. Samuel is such a pivotal person. He's critical to understand what's taking place in this uh, transition period in Israel. He's the first prophet, real national prophet, to show up on the scene since Moses. Now, we had Deborah, who's classified as a prophetess, and I really think that that refers to uh, something else. You have several women mentioned as prophetesses in the, in the Old Testament, with the exception of one. It's always followed by a hymn that they wrote. And that word prophet is a word that in some cases, we'll study this uh, more when we get into 1 Samuel 9 and 10, but in First Chronicles, it talks about those who prophesied with the lyre and with the harp and the musical instruments. The word is used in some unusual situations where it refers to singing hymns. It refers to what we might normally refer to as worship. So often we take words and we sort of pigeonhole them into one area or another, and we think a prophet is someone who foretells the future. That was only a secondary aspect of the gift of, of, of a, a Navi, a prophet. The, the Nevi'im were really the, the, uh, they were the prosecuting attorney for God uh, to address the nation's failures to obey the law. 
And since the consequences of that failure would come in the future, they would foretell the future judgments. And that's how we come to think of prophets as those who were telling the future. But their primary function was to challenge the people in light of the law of God. But there seems to be another use of that word, and we'll get into that later. So uh, there, there, there's, there's Miriam, there's Hannah, there's a, a couple others that a couple of other women who, and it seems that their gift of being a prophetess had to do more with music and the writing of divinely inspired hymns than it had to do with functioning in the same way that Moses and Samuel did. There were others like Joshua, perhaps, who had a gift of prophecy. You had the man of God, the unnamed man of God in 1 Samuel 2, who is clearly a prophet, but someone who has a national stage, uh, leader of the nation as a prophet. Samuel's the first one on the scene since, uh, since Moses. And if you remember, because we've studied this on Sunday mornings the past couple of, uh, couple of weeks, in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses predicted that there would be a prophet that would come, a prophet like me. And that is taken by New Testament writers to be a messianic prophecy. And when you think about who Moses was, he's the lawgiver, so that would be part of it. He served as a prophet. He ter- served as a lawgiver. He's also of the tribe of Levi, so he was a priest. But and the other thing that distinguishes uh, Moses from all of the other prophets is that Moses spoke with God face to face. No one else uh, spoke with God face to face. So this is what makes him distinct. Samuel is not a prophet like Moses. He doesn't uh, give the law. He doesn't interpret the law. We don't see that fulfilled until Jesus comes along. He's prophet, priest, and king. Matthew 5 through 7, he interprets the law for the people, which is uh, in the role of, of Moses. He, of course, has a face-to-face relationship with God the Father, uh, which distinguishes him, and he is going to be the, the future king. The son of David, he's the future king. So, so his role as prophet, though, uh, is, is important. Now, uh, as I pointed out, Samuel is a judge also. So he has a l- political leadership role. He's a priest, but he's not at the same level as Moses, but he's the most significant one to come along. And he's going to establish a new role for the prophet, and I pointed this out uh, Sunday morning, and that is that uh, he is going to be the predecessor to a king. From now on, before any king is anointed, he will always be anointed by uh he will always be anointed by a prophet. And this is important because it shows that the king is not a law unto himself, but the king is uh, under the law. The king represented the highest form of civil authority in, in the land, and he's under the law, and the law is given by God, so he is under the authority of God. He is not a law unto himself. He's put in his position as civil authority in order to serve God. As we get into the next few chapters, we're going to see the development in these chapters of a biblical view of of leadership, of political leadership, of civil leadership. And this culminates 
in a great indictment of a strong federal head type of government in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8. And the understanding of these chapters, as well as certain other chapters in the Torah, was fundamental in the development of, of English political theory in the period following the Reformation. It took a while to develop things, but by the end of the uh, by the end of the 1500s, as you move into the 1600s, a group developed within uh, within the English ecclesiastical system that were uh, running counter to the Anglican Church. They wanted a more pure form of biblical teaching and less of an emphasis on the on the rituals of Roman Catholicism because they wanted to purify the worship in the church and get rid of the uh, various uh, um, uh, manifestations of Roman Catholicism, Christ on the cross, uh, the paintings, all of these other things, and just have a much more simplified service. They were called Puritans. And the Puritans were a fun-loving people. They loved games. They brewed beer. They had a great time. They had a zest for living because that came from the Word of God. Most people today in Western civilization have a wrong view of the Puritans. What they think of as a Puritan was really a Victorian. This was what characterized uh, British evangelicalism in the 19th century and how they sort of redefined uh, Christianity and involved a certain, in different, different groups and involved a lot more, more legalism. But the Puritans were not that way, and the Puritans were struggling with a group of leaders, uh, James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England, and his son Charles I, and their assertion of a doctrine called the divine right of monarchy. And, of course, this led to a, a tremendous conflict between a parliament and the king because uh, the vast majority of those in parliament were Puritans, and they believed that the power, the authority of the king, uh, was not infinite. It was not uh, absolute, and it was to be restrained by the law. This led to the writing of a book by Samuel Rutherford in 1644 called Lex Rex. That's Latin for the law is king. And this developed from their understanding of the scripture that the king is under the law. This is exactly what we're seeing with Samuel. He's the prophet of God. When the king shows up, which will be Saul, Saul will be under the authority of the prophet, under the authority of the, of the law. And this is what developed into uh, uh, British understanding of law and the rule of law. And you'll hear a lot of that today. We talk about how it seems like the Supreme Court, the Congress, the president have all lost their understanding of the rule of law, that the Constitution is the law of the land, and everyone is under the authority of the law. And that is what's happened. When we slip into more relativism, you lose a sense of any kind of ultimate rule book. I mean, how would that look if you lost the rule book in the NFL? Or in Major League Baseball, you know, people want the rules followed stringently when it comes to their, their, their sports. But when it comes to the law of the land, oh, they want to make all kinds of exceptions. They want to change everything. In fact, they don't even want to read the rule book, and, and most of the time they don't. So 
this is laid down though this this political theory is laid down uh in the scripture and so this is what impacted uh especially the british empire and they exported this kind of thinking th- through their armies in their conquests of the colonies in america canada uh, australia uh, india uh, africa china and that was responsible for taking the gospel <laughs> to millions and millions of people. And there are a lot of things that didn't go right in their empire, and there were things where they made mistakes. But the greatest thing about the British Empire was that it took the gospel throughout the world, and millions were saved because of that. That doesn't mean everything they did was right, but that was how God used the, the, uh, used the British Empire. Now, the reason I'm making all of these different points is that we have to understand the nature of slavery and the nature of freedom. And what we see in Israel is that they really had a great system of freedom under the Mosaic Law, but they rejected it. And as a result of rejecting it and getting involved in idolatry, God allowed them to succumb to the defeat of foreign powers. That's the whole story of the book of Judges. And under the authority of the, uh, of, of the Philistines. And the core problem is a spiritual problem. The core problem that we face today is a spiritual problem. It doesn't mean that we ignore uh, political involvement. Sometimes you have people like uh, John Nelson Darby, who's a founder of, of, uh, of dispensational theology, thought that it was a sin for anybody to even vote. But see, we have to think a little more precisely about politics. Politics basically develops when you get a group of 10 or 15 or 20 families together and they establish a village and then they have to, they have to think about things like who's going to take care of the sanitation, who's going to pick up the garbage, who's going to, uh, how, who's going to provide the utilities, who's going to take care of, uh, uh, uh policing things, who's going to pick up uh, the trash and keep the streets clean and all of these kinds of things. And so those 15 or 20 families have to choose some somebody or a group of people who are going to take care of those things. That's politics at the basic level. And to eschew that as being somehow wrong is to plunge a society into basic disorder and confusion. And God is not a God of confusion and a God of disorder. But once you get away from the scripture, which provides the ultimate framework, and you reject that, the only solution is to look to yourselves as the ultimate source of any kind of absolute, any kind of criteria. And this is what happened during the period, uh, during the period of the judges. And so what happens now at the end of this period is that God is going to really bring this judgment upon them. They're going to be defeated militarily. They've been defeated many times. That's what the book of Judges covers. But at this point, they're going to be defeated at the Battle of Aphek, and the Ark of the Covenant uh, was captured. Now, this is critical because the Ark of the Covenant is the visible representation of the presence of God among the people. It is the sign of the fact that God has entered into a personal covenant with Israel. What's inside the box? What's inside the box is a record of the covenant that God made with with Moses, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. That's why it's called the Ark of the Testimony, is this is the legal repository. Uh, If you go buy a house, 
you're going to buy a house and you're going to sign a deed, and what happens to, to that deed? A copy gets put on file uh, down at City Hall, and you get a copy. And what happened in the ancient world when you had a covenant with God, one copy goes into the temple and the other copy is available to the people. And that's what's happened here. God's copy of the covenant is inside the ark. And the ark has been captured. God's been defeated. We can't imagine the psychological and spiritual level of defeat and despair that ran through Israel at this time. And I think it's a lot that we find with a lot of Christians today is because they're not really trusting God. They don't know the Bible. They don't know how God works in people's lives. They don't give enough enough attention to prayer. I ran across a story the other day of... uh, of a man who was being given a tour visitor from America and went over to England, met Charles Spurgeon, who's considered the prince of British preachers in the Victorian period, and um, Spurgeon's taking him around the, the church and showing him everything and took him down in the basement and said, well, I'm going to show you the boiler room. And the guy said, the boiler room? Why do I need to see the boiler room? He said, well, the boiler room is what keeps everything in the church working. And he opened the door to the boiler room. There were 300 people there who were in prayer and prayed around the clock. There was always a prayer meeting going. He said, this is the heart of what keeps this church going, is those who are in prayer, those who are trusting God uh, for everything. So what has happened is that God's been removed. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured, and this has been now taken into possession by the Philistines. And so the Israelites are in tremendous... They go into about a 20-year dark ages at this point. They are just at almost the very bottom of the Old Testament experience, except for the time when they're defeated by the Assyrians and the Babylonians uh, later on. Now, as I pointed out last time, what we see with the Ark of the Covenant, it's basically a box. The word for Ark means a box. It's, it's a box that is... Uh, made of acacia wood, which is one of the hardest woods, and it, it's it's least destroyed. It's not going to rot. It's not going to be penetrated by termites and bugs and other things. So it's going to firm up the the uh, hardness, the impermeability of the acacia wood is used to symbolize the perfection of the humanity of Jesus Christ. The gold, the pure gold, represents his undiminished deity. And so the whole of the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of the the Lord Jesus Christ. Inside of the Ark are the Ten Commandments, the sin of man that's broken the law of God, and the solid gold lid that's placed on the top represents the mercy seat. That's what this is called, the mercy seat. Paul refers to this in Romans 3 when he says that we've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. The Greek word there, hilaskerion, refers to the mercy seat. That's where propitiation took place. Because when the blood, uh, last week when I taught on this was, was the eve of Yom Kippur. And now we're in Sukkot, which is pictures the, the millennium. But, but what would happen on Yom Kippur is the high priest would take the blood from one of the uh, goats that had been sacrificed, the, the scapegoats taken out in the wilderness. He put this blood on the mercy seat, and the cherubim, the two angels, 
look at the blood. The cherubs are always associated with the holiness and the righteousness of God, and it is a picture of God's holiness and righteousness being satisfied. That's what happened on the cross. The, the mercy seat, the, the Ark of the Covenant, is a picture of how God will be satisfied through the death of Christ on the cross, the payment the payment for sin. So the ark is uh, extremely significant because it is through the death of Christ that something happens. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Real freedom starts at the cross. Now, there can be other levels of freedom, other types of freedom, but I'm always reminded when I speak of this of the confrontation in John chapter uh, 8 between the Pharisees and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he says that if they would uh, listen to him, they would know the truth, that is the truth about him, the truth of God's word, then the truth would set them free. And they're all offended because they say, well, we're free. He said, no, you're not. You're not free for a number of reasons. You're not free because you're under, uh, under a legalistic system that has perverted the law of Moses, and so you've become enslaved to religion. And religion in the Old Testament is the source of evil. Read through Kings and Chronicles sometimes, and what you'll get is this drumbeat over and over and over again about some king uh, did evil in the sight of Yahweh and they worshipped the Baalim and the Asherim. They worshipped in the high places. They worshipped the idols. Evil in the Old Testament is defined again and again as idolatry. That's evil. Evil is being involved in a religious system that may have high morals, that may be involved with wonderful people, and they may do all kinds of wonderful things. But because it denies the truth of the gospel, it's evil. Because it's not giving people the truth that by faith alone in Christ alone you can have eternal life, it's evil. Because it's allowing people to go to the lake of fire. It is not giving them the solution. It is like those on the, if it were, on the on the Titanic going down and nobody would throw any life, life jackets to anybody or launch any lifeboats to save anybody. That's real evil, and that is the Bible's view of religion and Christianity and the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament Judaism, biblical Judaism, was a relationship with God based upon his, based upon his grace. Now, Jesus Christ gives us freedom. Once we understand freedom spiritually, then we can begin to understand freedom socially and politically. But ultimately, it's got to be grounded in that understanding of what happens at that transaction on the cross when the certificate of our debt was nailed on the cross and we are set free from sin. That's the foundation. And when we live in a system of moral relativism, there is no sin. This is what happened in Israel. There was no sin. We saw that, that when there's no sin, when there's no absolutes, there's no sin. And so what you have is you have a perverted priesthood, a corrupt priesthood, where they are perverting the women who are serving in the temple so that these women are, are now being forced into uh, religious prostitution. Women were abused in that system. Women were abused at that time. You see a breakdown of the family. You see a breakdown of economics. You see breakdown of of the priesthood, the breakdown of, of leadership, and, the, and then the country is overrun and oppressed 
uh, by the by the Philistines. And so the re, the bottom line is, if you don't get right spiritually, then you're never going to be able to recover. And so when God is defeated at Apex, at Aphek, He is not really defeated because this is part of God's strategy to wake the nation up to the fact that they need to get right with Him first before they can go forward. And that is a message that resonates with many of us individually and with this nation specifically, is if we're going to ever recover to where God blesses this nation, then it there's going to have to be a spiritual renewal at the very heart of it, a return to the truth of the Word of God and the return to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what God is doing through this this defeat is to go through a process that is horrible if you were a Jew and you were experiencing it, but God is going to use that eventually to turn them uh, back to himself. Now in 1 Samuel 5, 1, we read that the Philistines took the ark of God, brought it from Ebenezer and Ashdod to Ashdod, and when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and sent it uh, and set it by Dagon. Now what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 5 is that the scene now shifts from Shiloh and went from Shiloh then to Aphek and now to enemy territory. God has now been captured by the enemy and we're inside enemy territory and we're inside the pagan temple and remember the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, and Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10, says that the idols of the Gentiles are demons, that Satan is behind all of the false religions. You can think about them. We saw one all last week on TV. There are many others. Behind every false religion, anything other than biblical Christianity, there's demonism. We live in a world that is not... Uh, restricted to to what we experience with our senses, but there is a spiritual conflict, an angelic conflict that takes place behind the scenes. That's going to be part of what we look at when we come to our passage uh, Sunday in, in Matthew. So there's going to be a spiritual battle take place here in the temple of Dagon. And so the Philistines have now captured God thinking they've defeated him and thinking they can control the God of Israel. And instead, God is going to bring them under severe uh, judgment. It's going to be a little amusing from our perspective, but from their perspective, it would have been quite miserable. Now, as we look at the Philistines, just to remind you, they were originally a group that came out of Kaftor and Crete. They were called the Sea Peoples. And they established fortress cities along the coastal plain of Canaan. The five main cities were Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. And some of those names sound very familiar because there are cities in those locations still. The Gaza Strip. Gaza City is in the Gaza Strip. Ashdod is in Israel. It's just north of the Gaza Strip. And frequently when uh, the Hamas fire rockets into Israel, they will fire them at Ashdod. It's within 10 miles of the, or less than that, of the, of the border with Gaza. 
Uh, Ashkelon is very close there as well. Uh, we're not sure where Gath was located. We think we do. Uh, Ekron, these were, uh, would be in what is now uh, Israel's territory. The Philistines in their initial approach to colonize this area are mentioned during the time of, uh, uh, of Abraham. We remember the episodes with Abimelech and uh, Abraham going to stay with Abimelech and lying about Sarah, his wife, saying she's his sister, which was half true because she was his half-sister. And then uh, Abimelech is warned by God, and then he comes down on on uh, on Abraham. Abraham also entered into a covenant uh, with Abimelech. It had to do with the water wells at a place called Beersheba, which is the place of the seven wells. And so some of you have been there with me uh, to Israel. So that was the early incursion. And then uh, there's a later incursion in Judges. We hear of this uh, of Shamgar defeating the Philistines in Judges 3.31. But the real troublemaker with the uh, with the Philistines was Samson. Now, just a reminder, because Samson's mentioned in Hebrews 11, we know that at some point Samson trusted God because it says so by faith. And it lists Gideon and Jephthah, Deborah and Barak, and Samson. But Samson was probably trusted God only at the very, very end of his life. But for most of his life, when you read Judges, he's not in obedience to God. He is a rabble-rouser. He, he, he violates, he, you know, most of the time when, I don't know about you, but I grew up listening to my mother read me stories from Hurlbut's Stories of the Bible. You know, it had, had, was a big book, and it had nice pictures in there. And it was it told the story, and you think, oh, this Samuel's just really great. And the reason Samuel lost his power was he broke his his vow, his Nazarite vow, because he got a haircut. Trouble is, he had broken his vow again and again and again. He wasn't supposed to touch anything related to grapes. He wasn't supposed to go near a grape or a grapevine or wine. And yet he does that on a couple of occasions. He's not supposed to touch a dead body. We all know the story about how he single-handedly killed a lion. But then he went back by the carcass of the lion, a dead thing which he's not supposed to touch, and the bees have developed honey, a honeycomb inside that carcass, and he reaches in there to get the honey. So he's defiled himself there. He marries a Philistine in violation of the law, and then he deserts her. She gets turned back married to somebody. I mean, it's just a mess. He's a womanizer. Uh, he's uh, rebellious against his parents. He violates his Nazarite vow every time he can turn around. Finally, God says, okay, this is it. Uh, I'm going to end this whole uh, travesty here, but we're going to use it. God, again, is multitasking. So when uh, Samuel gets his, I mean, Samson gives up his, uh, uh, his secret as his hair to Delilah. They cut his hair. Now God finally judges him. I mean, he's been extending grace all through this time. Now he's going to discipline. He's going to lose his power, and he gets arrested uh, by the Philistines and thrown in jail. They put out his eyes. And at the end, he is going to uh, uh, pray to God to give him the strength one more time so that he can bring Dagon's house down. So that destroy. But the Philistines still don't get the message that the God of Israel is greater than their God, uh, Dagon. So they're going to come back, and they're going to place the Ark of God in, in another Dagon temple in Ashdod to indicate 
that God is a servant of Dagon, that Dagon's defeated him, and now God is his personal slave. And the Philistines ultimately won't be defeated until David defeats them in 2 Samuel chapter 13. So with this defeat at Aphek, what we now see is that Israel has reached a place where they become slaves to this pagan power. Now, the analogy there in terms of Christian life is that often uh, when we reject God and we make idols out of the uh, details of life and the world around us and the lusts of our flesh, then what happens is God gives us over to the power of our sin nature and we re-enslave ourselves uh, to the power of the, of the sin nature. And so there's some, some, some lessons we have to learn here, and one is that if we're going to recover, we're going to have to get right with the Lord again, and that begins with uh, with confession of sin. But what happens with the Philistines is they sort of mirror a technique that is used by by tyrants down through the ages in order to keep uh, people under control and to keep them uh, subservient. And so they practice an early form of dis- disarmament. And this is seen in 1 Samuel 13, 19. We've seen other examples of disarmament. Uh, you have Adonai Bezek back in Judges chapter 1. And after they defeated him, what did they do to disarm him? They cut off his fingers and his thumb and his t- big toe. That was disarmament. It's hard to hold a, throw a spear or hold a sword when you don't have a thumb. And it's hard to run after your enemy if you can't keep your balance because you don't have big toes. So that was one form. This was this was practiced in the in the uh, ancient world. It's practiced today. This is why there's such a battle and has been going on for the last fifty or sixty years against the Second Amendment. Once you disarm a citizenry then the tyrants can do whatever they wish. In fact, what we learn from this example in Scripture is citizens need to be able to defend themselves against government so that the government should not have weapons that the citizens don't have or the, or the citizens should be able to defend. Now we've got all kinds of helicopters and missiles and all kinds of things. It's pretty difficult to just let every citizen have whatever they can to defend themselves against the government. So we're greatly outnumbered. So if the tyrants want to defeat us, you'll hear a lot of conservatives and other uh, pro-Second Amendment types uh, beat their chest and say, well, we're going to fight back. No, you won't. I don't think we will. Because the government's got us great out, greatly outnumbered and outarmed. And people will be uh, quickly herded into camps or whatever. And uh, the idea that we're in the Old West and we can, uh, we can fight back is just, I think, a fantasy. Because we don't have the kind of weapons that the military has. We don't have fully automatic weapons. We don't have uh, hand grenades. And we don't have all these other things that, that the military has. Uh, so it's going to be pretty easy to uh, to dominate the citizenry. So the Philistines come along, they take the ark, and they're bringing it back uh, back to uh, to Ashdod. Now, what God is doing at this point is saying to Israel that you have succumbed to pagan thought for for the last twenty or thirty years. 
in this recent cycle. You've been succumbing to pagan thought again and again since the time of, uh, of Deborah and Barak, and you have constantly been uh, compromising. So now that you have compromised with the fertility gods and goddesses of the Philistines, I'm going to let you be defeated by them and let you uh, attempt to assimilate to their culture, and you're going to get a real taste of what it is to be a slave and to be dominated by a foreign power. So he's using this, using these unbelievers as a tool to discipline Israel. But in doing so, uh, it appears that God has been defeated, so the people are in despair, and they wonder how in the world they're ever going to have victory. There's a lot of people who wonder that today, even uh, in our own political system. But what we have to remember is that whatever the problems are that we face, whether they're personal problems, and we have a lot of problems because we're corrupt, fallen sinners. We have problems with our emotions. Our sin nature uh, frequently uh, influences us in the direction of anger and bitterness and resentment and worry and anxiety and depression. And all of these things flow out of our sin nature. And we struggle with those things. And we're supposed to struggle with them. It's not easy in the Christian way of life. But we do have victory because we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God and the promise of victory that we can actually see things change even though it is difficult, even though it's a battle. And too often today people opt out for quick-fix solutions, but that just tries to sort of, what that does is short-circuit God's grace and God's power. And so God is trying to do the same thing with them as he does with us, teach us to rely upon him and not on something else. We also have people who struggle with other problems such as sexual identity. You talk to somebody who has problems because they are attracted to someone of the same sex, they feel like this is an irreversible condition. You talk to them and say, I was born this way. I've always been this way. But God says that this is not the case, that this is a result of volition. And if you get right with God and walk with him, this can change. And he changes it. And there are hundreds and thousands of Christians who have seen God work in miraculous ways in changing them because they fall in love with the Savior and they fall in love with the Word of God and they walk by the Spirit and God changes the desires uh, desires of their heart. We have problems with addictions, which we used to just call bad habits. We have bad habits of thinking and we have bad habits of doing. But God says that he can replace those bad habits with the good habits and the discipline that comes, the self-mastery that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. We're always reminded that it doesn't matter how badly we fail, doesn't matter how badly Israel failed, God's grace was always there to help them recover. And God always met them where they were, and he meets us where we are. So that he's not saying, well, you have to fix all these things you just screwed up, and then I'll give you a little more grace. You know, he meets us where we are, and that's what God's grace is. And it's always sufficient, and the Word of God is always sufficient, and the cross of Christ is always sufficient because Christ paid the penalty for every sin 
at the cross. So we, we, we see these lessons emphasized here. Now, in these next five verses, what we see is that God is superior to all religious and political systems. That's just the first five verses, and if I'm lucky, I'll get through that tonight in the next ten minutes. First of all, we see an emphasis here on the faithfulness of God. That is foundational. The, the sufficiency of God's grace and his power and the faithfulness are foundational to everything else that we believe in the Christian life. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who delivered Israel at the Exodus is the same God that can deliver you and me from whatever's oppressing us. The God who, the, the Jesus who cast demons out during the incarnation is the same Christ that has the same power to give us victory over whatever we're struggling with today. That hasn't changed. We have to understand the faithfulness of God. And so we see an example of this here in four ways. First of all, God shows that he's faithful to the Abrahamic covenant in what happens in this next section. He is uh, going to curse those who curse Israel. He's going to bring judgment. Even though he used the Philistines to bring judgment on Israel because they do it in a hostile way and they do it the wrong way and they think that it's their power that's done it and their God that's done it rather than God, uh, he's going to curse them. Second thing he's going to show is that he, Yahweh, is superior to the Philistines' gods, and the Philistine gods had nothing to do with the victory of the Philistines at Aphek. It's The problem is that Israel has turned its back on the God of the Bible. See, the problem always comes down to sin. It's not chemistry. It's not uh, electrons that don't fire. It's not nerves that aren't working. It's sin, S-I-N. We live in a culture today that wants to blame everything in the world other than the sin nature. And if you're not starting with that problem, then you're never going to have freedom from whatever the issues are. Third thing is he's going to show us he's superior to the Philistines themselves, and he's going to just really run rampant through their culture. And then the last thing we see is that God's in complete control of history, that Israel doesn't think God's in control. They think God's been defeated and that God's ignoring them, but he's showing that he's in uh, uh, great control of history. So the Israelites are defeated by the Philistines because of their spiritual condition. On Sunday, we're going to see that the, the, the apostles are not able to cast the demon out of this epileptic boy. He's not really epileptic. That's the translation. He's, he's really being oppressed by a demon, uh, if not indwelt by a demon. And they fail miserably because they don't trust God. That's the bottom line. We have to trust God. The Israelites were trying to win the battle through their own own efforts, through human viewpoint thinking and human viewpoint methodology, but God is going to give them a lesson that it doesn't matter how powerful they are, it doesn't matter how skilled they are, it doesn't matter what their technology is, because that's not why they lost. They didn't lose because they had bad technology. It did, they didn't lose because they had bad military leadership. They didn't lose because they weren't in good enough shape. They lost because they were trusting the wrong thing, and God has to make that point. And that's the same thing that we have to learn. When we feel that God has let us down at certain times and that the Word of God just doesn't... I've heard people say this, well, doctrine just doesn't work for me. 
You know, I told the story a few weeks ago about a deacon's wife who, who finally made it really clear the reason she could deal with the problems in her life was she went through psychotherapy. Oh, so Bible doctrine doesn't work. Light bulbs went off. Everybody realized what the issue was. You're not really in love with the God of grace and the God of the Bible. That's because you've just made God some sort of academic exercise. So there's no problem that we face. It's too great for the for the power of God and too great for the word of God. And we need to quit looking for solutions somewhere else. Okay, so this brings us really to where we are, all of that by way of introduction to the fact that God is superior to all these religious and political systems. And so I think this is already 830. I'm going to go ahead and stop there, and we'll start here next week in verse 1 and probably make our way through good bit of this this chapter. It's one of the more humorous ones. But think about this. You ought to read this. You ought to be reading ahead as we go through this to get a good grasp of what's happening. But this is one of the most significant sections of Scripture uh, dealing with political theory. Since we're in the whole political season now leading up to the election next year, we're going to learn some important lessons, and we're going to learn how bad, bad leadership can be because Saul demonstrates that. And then we're going to see what the essence of good leadership is when we come to David towards the end of the study of uh, 1 Samuel. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that even when we appear defeated in our Christian life, you're never defeated. Your power is never diminished. The only thing that causes problems for us is our own sin nature, our own volition, our own failure to trust you, our own failure to uh, rely upon your word and make it the center piece and the center focus of our lives. That as Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He had been in situations where he had absolutely nothing in times when he had a tremendous amount. And what he was saying was he could face any and every circumstances because his stability, his hope, his happiness, his joy was not dependent on the details of life or circumstances. It was dependent upon his relationship with the God of the universe, the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And only because of that he could have this great joy that he talks about in Philippians. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us in our own spiritual lives to focus upon you and focus upon your word to make it a greater reality in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.